Okay, turn with me to Matthew 13, and we're going to begin reading at verse 24. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that it's the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three seda a flower until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed... These are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and, all will, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. To set our thinking in motion, we need to be reminded that the Lord is the king of the earth. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler over this earth. Uh, the Old Testament tells us that God is the king of the universe. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Uh, Daniel 4, 17 and 32 tell us that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind. Uh, Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that God the Father has appointed Jesus Christ heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. So we affirm that Jesus Christ is the king of this earth. Within that kingdom, Christ has given Satan permission to exercise a certain amount of control uh, as the ruler of the power of the air. Uh, he allows fallen human beings a certain amount of freedom, uh, but all of it exercised within the context of them being slaves to sin. Uh, and yet, over it all, he is still the king, and he is still ruling. And so then, in every phase of human history, every phase of human history marks some facet of the rulership of Jesus Christ. There is no period of time when the kingdom of God is not in effect on the earth. 
God mediates his rule on the earth through men. Initially, God mediated his rule on the earth through Adam. Adam was his agent. And then there were the patriarchs through whom God mediated his rule. And then the kings and then the priests and the prophets and then the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And then in a very real sense, God mediated his will and his rule through the apostles who overlapping with Jesus Christ in the early church, were the very source by which God brought revelation to man about his kingdom. There's coming a future time when God will again bring his rule to earth as mediated through the living, exalted, glorified, incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that as the millennial kingdom. And then finally, the new heavens and the new earth will be merged into the eternal kingdom when Jesus will visibly reign forever. And the Bible delineates very clearly all of these elements of God's rule in the earth. But there's one more that we left out in that little recounting there. And that is the period of time between the rejection of Christ to the return of Christ, the age in which we live. Uh, that too is ruled by Jesus Christ. This too is a form of his kingdom. The Bible designates it in the New Testament as the mystery form. Uh, that which was not revealed in the Old Testament. That period of time was not delineated, but now through the New Testament teachings of our Lord and particularly the expanded teachings of the apostles, uh, particularly Paul, it's clearly defined for us. We're living in that era. Jesus in Matthew 13 tells us what it will be like. Uh, he, de he defines for us in seven parables the character, the extent, the value and the consummation of this period known as the mystery form of the kingdom. God is mediating his rule on the earth through his church, through believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't see this period of time just as the prophets of old didn't see it either. So when the Messiah arrived, they thought that he would immediately establish his kingdom. And when he established his king kingdom, immediately all of the rebels and all of the unbelievers would be destroyed and righteousness and holiness would fill the earth and the kingdom would be as it was predicted to be by the Old Testament prophets. And so they were always concerned about the kingdom and its character and its power and its consummation. Even after Jesus died on the cross, they were still curious about the kingdom. Uh, that's all he ever really talked to them about, really, but... Uh, before his death, it was the kingdom. After his resurrection, it was more about the kingdom. And so we find them, the disciples in Acts 1-6, asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? To which he replies, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father set by his own authority. Uh, in other words, that's not your business. And after he ascended back to heaven, two angels told them, this Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. In other words, he's coming back in the clouds of the sky, and after that, the kingdom will come. The kingdom of glory and righteousness and absolute holiness, the kingdom where the Lord Jesus rules with a rod of iron and tolerates no evil, that kingdom which was fully anticipated by the prophets awaits his return. And in the meantime, there is a form of the kingdom, and that form is described as the mystery. Now, that's very hard for the disciples to understand. They didn't see that possibility. They only saw the full and glorious consummation. 
So Jesus begins to tell them parables here in Matthew 13 to help them understand the nature of this intervening period in which we live. It hasn't ended yet because Christ hasn't come. So he begins to describe it to them. And the first thing he says is a parable about four different kinds of soil, uh, which represented four different kinds of hearts and the people they would encounter as they sowed the seed of the gospel. There would be the hard resistant soil, which the seed couldn't penetrate. Then there would be the shallow soil on rocky ground where the seed would spring up for a little while and then die out because there was no depth. There would be the thorny or briar filled soil where the seed went down, began to grow, but there was choked out by the thorny briars that occupied the soil. And there was the fourth, which was the good soil where there was real fruit. And Jesus is saying in this form of the kingdom, not everyone believes. Everyone is not genuine. Everyone is not bearing the fruit of righteousness. Now, that would have been a devastating truth to the disciples. They saw no such form of the kingdom, no such mingled kingdom, no such kingdom with good and bad tolerated. They didn't see that. All they saw in the Old Testament was a kingdom of righteousness, a king of holy glory in which unbelievers were devastatingly judged, punished, put out, and destroyed. They saw what one Bible teacher calls a new and stainless humanity being brought into existence in the kingdom and the enemies being destroyed, In quote. So having heard the first parable, they probably would have thought to themselves, well, there's going to be three kinds of rejectors and one kind of true, genuine, fruit-bearing soil. What's going to happen to the rejectors? And I think they must have been wondering about those blasphemous Pharisees who accused Jesus of being Satan. You know, what are you going to do with them? What's going to happen to the rejectors? Are they going to get it? Are they going to get blasted away? And they had good reason to think that because, remember, they'd heard John the Baptist, who says, when he comes, he'll baptize you with fire, uh, with fire being symbolic of judgment. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear, thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into a barn. He'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here's John the Baptist, the immediate forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't even see this interim period. When he, he's, he, he, here's the immediate forerunner saying, when he gets here, it's going to be fire and burning up of all the chaff and only the wheat will be kept. So it's very obvious that that's what the disciples would have thought. And all of this is based on the Old Testament prophets. Uh, go back sometime and read Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 20, and Zechariah 14. Those are just some samples of passages you will find in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. And they all come together to say that when Messiah comes, he will be king. He will establish a kingdom. He'll purge out the ungodly. He will purge out the rebels, rebuke the unbelievers, establish righteousness across the face of the earth. Everyone will believe. Everyone will walk in his law. And so the immediate problem that the disciples have is, look, if there's three kinds of people in this world who aren't going to believe, are you just going to blow them away right on the spot? Is this the time? And very likely in Acts 1-6 when they said, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom, what they're really saying is, is this the time that you're going to blast away the unbelievers? Is this the time of their devastating judgment? And so the Lord needs to explain to them that he's going to do what he's going to do with the unbelievers who are in the earth during this mystery form of the kingdom. And he does that in his second parable, 
which is known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. He answers the question, what happens to unbelievers in this age? And that parable begins in verse 24 of Matthew 13. And what happens is that after he gives this parable and a couple or more, once again, the disciples asked him to explain this parable. So he does. And we find his interpretation in verses 36 to 43. So what we're going to do as we study through this is we're going to look at the narrative of the parable in verses 24 to 30. And then we're going to skip down to verse, verses 36 and on and look at the interpretation. And then, then we're going to go back and study the other two parables in verses 31 and 35. Okay? Uh, so let's look at three parts of the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's the narration, the interpretation, and the application. Uh, we don't need any more of an outline than that because the story just sort of carries itself. So let's go back and read verses 24 to 30 again. This is the, the narration of the parable. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's a synonymous term, by the way, with the term kingdom of God. Sometimes you see God's kingdom referred to as the kingdom of God and other times the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they are one and the same. It's a parable about God's rule over earth during this mystery period, and he likens it to a man who has sown good seed in his field. Now, notice that this man owns the field. It is his field. Keep that in mind. Uh, he's not borrowing or leasing the field. It's his field. And he sows good seed, not mediocre seed or average seed. He sows really good seed. Now, that was a very routine thing in that part of the world. Galilean farmers plowed their field. They cleaned out all the, the weeds. They turned the soil over. They removed all the rock underneath so that the seed would find good root and bring forth fruit. And so the man does that. He sows good seed in his field. And then verse 25 says, But while his men were sleeping. Now that tells us that he had a crew to help him. He must have been a wealthy man. He had a lot of folks helping him with the sowing. And they were sleeping, not because they were lazy, but because it was night. Uh, a man who works hard has the right and the privilege to enjoy his sleep. And so at night, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. The term tares uh, refers to a poisonous weed known as darnel uh, that is virtually indistinguishable from wheat until the ear appears. Uh, only a wheat farmer with a skilled, trained eye can tell the difference. Uh, so the farmer's enemy comes and sows these darnels among the wheat. Uh, the term among there is a very strong Greek expression, which means in the midst, throughout, 
between. So these darnels are sown all throughout the field, mixed in among the wheat. So this guy's sower, this guy's this guy was the sower's enemy, and a good way to ruin a man's crop was to sow his field full of weeds. You might wonder, did that kind of thing actually happen? Yes. In fact, it was so common that the Roman government had a law against it, which prescribed severe punishment and restitution by the offender. In fact, this kind of evil behavior is still known to take place in rural areas of India to this day. Uh, it was, it's a really great way to ruin your neighbor, just oversow his field with these poisonous weeds. Uh, and, and that's exactly what his enemy did. And then he stole, steals off into the night. He, he's a subtle man who operated in stealth and secrecy, and he did an awful thing. And while the Darnells are not normally fatal to humans, they can cause great stomach pain and distress and render bread made from flour that contains some of them to be unpalatable. It turns the flour gray, and it makes it taste acrid and bitter. Uh, and so full of envy and bitterness and anger and hatred, the enemy oversows his field. And verse 26 says, But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Uh, you see, it isn't until the head of the wheat begins to develop that the difference between a Darnell plant and a wheat plant can be determined with absolute certainty. Until then, they look extremely similar. And then verse 27 says, The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? They're shocked. Uh, they, would, they wouldn't have been shocked if there were just a few of these Darnells because they were common in the area. It's a grassy kind of weed. It grows wherever it wants to grow. So they would have, wouldn't have been shocked if there were a few of them uh, because they always had a few weeds in the crop that they had to deal with but they were shocked because the whole field is full of them. So the landowner recognizes that an enemy has done this to his field. And then the slaves ask him if he wants them to go out and gather the tares. They can, they can recognize the Darnells now uh, because they, as they mature, they turn a slate gray color, uh, whereas the wheat is a golden brown. And, uh, but the landowner has a different idea of what to do. And he says, verses 29 and 30, no, you're, you're liable to uproot some of the wheat while you're trying to pull out the Darnells. Instead, just leave them there for now. Allow both to grow together till the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I'm going to tell the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them into bundles to burn them up, and then gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, so you see, the, only at the harvest could the good and bad plants be distinguished with absolute certainty. Uh, the reapers were more experienced than the slaves at making that distinction, and thus they were qualified to weed out the tares and burn them. And then they would gather the wheat and store it in the landowner's barn. Now that's the narration. Very simple story. From the perspective of listeners in an agricultural society, they would have easily understood that story. But what did it mean? What did it mean? Well, that's what the disciples wanted to know. So let's jump down then to verse 36, and here we see the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. 
And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So he's just identified every single person in the story or, or thing. He says, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So after telling them the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, which we will come back to, uh, verse 36 says, He then left the crowds and went into the house. Now that may seem like nothing more than a transitional statement, but it's very important. Uh, why did he leave the people and go back in the house? Well, look back at verse 10. It says, The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Why? Well, because of verses 13 to 15. They don't believe, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't understand. Uh, their hearts are dull, their ears are deaf, their eyes are blind. In other words, because they don't believe in me. I'm not going to explain the truth to them, and that's why I'm talking to them in parables. Uh, but to you, verses 16 and 17. He says, it's given to know these things. Blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. You're going to understand. Okay? So here they are, just like they did with the parable of the soils, asking him for the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, actually, from reading Mark's account, uh, it says there that he explained all of the parables to them. Mark 4.34 says Jesus was only speaking to the people in parables, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Uh, but Matthew only mentions Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now it says he went into the house. What house? Well, the house he came out of. And most likely, very likely, it was Simon Peter's house back in Capernaum. Uh, back in verse 1, it says he went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. That would have been the Sea of Galilee. And since Simon Peter was a fisherman who lived in Capernaum on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus usually stayed with Peter and his family. It's most likely Peter's house. So he goes back into the house, and the disciples came to him, and they say, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Uh, and they wanted to know. And, and here, notice here that the term disciples includes more than just the twelve. Uh, because Mark 4.10 says that when he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, uh, began asking him about the parables. Uh, so this was a group of those who believed in him, which included the twelve. And there, But there are only people there who are believers. Uh, they're the only ones that get an explanation. God only reveals his truth to his own, and, he, and so he answers their question. Now, notice the request they made. They identify the story, don't they? Uh, he didn't identify it. Uh, he doesn't give it a title. They did. Uh, the title they gave it was the parable of the tares of the field. So they recognized that that was the main feature. They knew the story was about those weeds that didn't belong in the field. 
and in the end that they were going to get burned up. They knew that. That was the feature of the story to which they attached importance. And so after they were alone with him, they asked him to explain the parable, and he does. So verse 37, he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus. Christ. Yeah. Christ is the Son of Man. That's his common title for himself. Uh, he used that more than any other title to refer to himself. Uh, in fact, only one time in the New Testament is that phrase ever used by anyone else of him. Um, every other time, it's a phrase that he uses about himself. And he, he uses it because it identifies him in his incarnation. It identifies him in his humanness. It identifies him to be all that a man could be, the perfect man. It identifies him as the second Adam, representative of the race. It's his unique incarnation term. It is also a messianic term. Uh, in Daniel 7:13, the Messiah is said to be called the Son of Man. Uh, so he's identifying himself as the Messiah, God incarnate, in that title. Now the Jews knew it was a messianic title. In Luke 22, uh, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they demand that he tells them whether or not he is the Messiah. And he responds to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they, said, they all said, are you the Son of God then? He called himself the Son of Man, and they responded by asking him if he was claiming to be the Son of God. Uh, so they understood that the title Son of Man was a messianic reference. And so we see that the sower is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the farmer sowing the seed. <coughs> now what does that tell us? Well, there are some lessons here for us. It tells us that the Lord is sowing seed. Where? Well, back in verse 24, it tells us in his field. Now notice what it says in verse 38. What is the field? The world. So the Lord is sowing seed in the world, and the world is his field. He owns it. It belongs to him. He is sovereign. He is the monarch. He is the king of the earth. He holds in his hand the title deed, even though he hasn't really laid claim to it fully, as he will in Revelation 6, when he unrolls the scroll that's the title deed to the earth and takes back the earth. But it is, it is his nonetheless. And according to Romans 8.22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, waiting for him to take possession of what is rightly his. And so then we see that Christ is sowing seed in the world which belongs to him. It's his field. It's his kingdom. He planted Adam and Eve in it. Satan came and usurped everything, but it is still God's. It is still Jesus' kingdom. He created it, he will reclaim it, but it still belongs to him. Satan is like a squatter that comes along and lives in someone's house. The owner still owns the house even though the squatter is living there and trashing the place, but someday that owner is going to come back and reclaim his house and restore it to its former beauty. So the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, sows in his own field. And what does he sow? Jesus says he's sowing what? 
Good seed. Now, what is the good seed? Well, if you go back to the parable of the soils, it, it would mean the seed of the word of God. Uh, but this is a different parable, and the meaning is different here. In this parable, the good seed refers to the son of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom. Uh, he says that in verse 38. Uh, what that means is the Lord puts the children of the kingdom in the world. They are those who respond to the truth of the word. They are characterized by their relationship to the kingdom. They belong to the kingdom. It's very simple. Now, there are a lot of people who think that the field is the church. They say, well, the Lord planted the church and then Satan came along and spread tares in the church. And so in the church, the wheat and the tares grow together. That's, that's a common interpretation. But Jesus says in verse 38 that the field is the world. Now, that's not doesn't seem too difficult, does it? So those people say, well, but you have to interpret what he meant. No, you don't. <laughs> he just interpreted what he meant. You don't try to correct Jesus on his own theology. Okay? The Lord said the field is the world, and he knows the word church. And if he had wanted to use it, he could have used it. But the field is the world. So what is it saying? It's saying that God sows the children of his kingdom throughout the world. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. God is going to put his people all around the world. We don't have a problem with that. By the way, if you make it the church, you, you will wind up with a whole lot of chaos in trying to interpret the parable that it's hopeless. Uh, because later on when the slaves say, can we pull out the tares? The Lord says, don't pull them out. Let them grow together. Well, if that's the church, then we have no right to exercise church discipline. Uh, we have no right to expose a heretic. We have no right to deal with sin, but that's not what Jesus said in Matthew 18, uh, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians and other New Testament epistles. If you make this field a church, you've really got problems. Uh, leave it the way Jesus interpreted it. It's the world. So you have believing people. They are the sons of the kingdom. We are the subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been planted in the world to be his witnesses, to grow and become fruitful plants of righteousness. Uh, we who genuinely love the king, who genuinely affirm his lordship, who truly are subjects of his sovereignty, we are planted in the world. <coughs> Isn't it great to know we're not here by accident? That we are planted by the Lord in exactly the place that he wants us in the world? Uh, it also tells me that we're not to sequester ourselves away from the world. We're not to be off in a monastery somewhere or hiding in a cubicle uh, or that we're not to live in a holy house in a holy city somewhere. Um, and there are a lot of Christians who, who, who want a Christian doctor, a Christian dentist, a Christian auto mechanic, a Christian banker, Christian lawyer, and so forth. And they want to live in a Christian community with all Christian friends and never ever have to deal with the unregenerate, unbelieving people of this world. Now, I understand the desire to want someone who's honest and won't cheat you in business, but I also recognize that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, we're not called to isolate ourselves away from unbelievers. We have been planted in the world. So in this kingdom, we are 
going to be planted all throughout the world and we're there for many reasons. Uh, but one is so that we will be matured by the trouble that the world gives us. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. John 16.33 In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the Lord plants us there so we can develop and grow. Now, who else is in the field with us? Verse 38 says, The tares are the sons of the evil one. That's the devil. Jesus says that directly in verse 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. He's the evil one. He's called that 12 times in the New Testament. The evil one. And the article there is emphatic. He is the the utterly wicked evil one, the evilest one of all evil ones. Uh, and anyone who is not a child of the kingdom is a child of the evil one. There's only two kinds of people in the world, children of the king and children of the devil. And if you're not a child of the king through your submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're a child of the devil. And it's, it's just that plain and simple. You're on his team. You're functioning under his control. Ephesians 2.2 says believers formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. If you will not obey the lordship of Christ, then the spirit that is working in you is Satan. We all know that we all know John 8.44, where Jesus told the religious leaders of Israel, you're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Uh, read 1 John 3 sometime. It, in it, John contrasts the children of God and the children of the devil, and those are the only two kinds of children there are. Now, there is relative evil within that children of the devil category. There's relative evil. Some are more evil than others. But they're all children of the devil. Some are worse than others, but all are bad, and all are representatives of Satan himself. And that's what it means in 1 John 5.19 when it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there's an interesting statement in Matthew 5.37 where Jesus is contrasting righteous behavior with unrighteous behavior and he sums it up at the end of verse 37 with these words, anything beyond this, anything beyond these is of the evil one. In other words, if you go beyond or in contradiction to God's law, it proceeds from the evil one. <coughs> That's a monumental theological statement. The origin of evil is from the evil one. God is not the author of evil. Uh, evil proceeds from the evil one. He is the enemy who oversows the good field. Chronologically, you see it in creation. God sowed children of the kingdom, Adam and Eve, and then came the enemy, and he oversowed God's creation by deceit and lies, causing Adam and Eve to fall. And then that continues on throughout human history. And so Satan is the origin of evil. <coughs> People always ask the question, where did evil come from? That's where it came from. 
the evil one. And so then back in Matthew 13, the Lord sows believers, subjects of the king, in the world, and Satan oversows with his children. So the world then is commingled, subjects of the king and subjects of the usurper, Satan himself. And by the way, the term devil there in verse 39 is this word, diabolos. Diabolos. From it we get our English word diabolical. Um, it means slanderer, uh, false accuser. That's who Satan is. He slanders God. He slanders Jesus Christ. He slanders believers. So we're commingled in the world. That's how it has been. That's how it will also be in the mystery kingdom known as the church, a commingling. And we have to understand that Satan has really oversown God's field, the world. He has his people everywhere. In fact, in most parts of the world, the entire crop is sons of the evil one. Uh, you have to look a long time to find some wheat there. So there's a massive sowing, and he likes to sow his wheat, I mean, he likes to sow his weeds as close to the wheat as he can. And even though the field here is the world, he does sow them in the church, doesn't he? Uh, because the church is part of the field. Uh, we know from Matthew 7 that he has his iniquitous workers sown right into the church. They claim to be working for Jesus. The reality is they're working for Satan. Uh, we find them, when we find them here in the church, though, we have biblical instruction to get rid of them. The New Testament is clear on that. Uh, we will study that in detail when we get to chapter 18. Uh, there will be Judases right in the middle of the sons of the kingdom, just as there were was with him. He has his 12. There's a Judas in there. So what's this saying to us? It says we exist together. We, we breathe the same air, we eat the same food, we drive the same highways, we live in the same neighborhoods, we work with the same employers, we go to the same schools, we visit the same doctors, we're under the same sky, we enjoy the same warm sun. The just and the unjust are rained upon in this era because it's all commingled until the end. And then we come to verse 39 and we find this important statement. The harvest is the end of the age. Now, why does he say that? Because the disciples were ready to put the sickle in right then. They, were, they wanted God to come in judgment right then. Uh, as, and, and I must admit, I get that same way sometimes. <laughs> sometimes when you see the wickedness and unbelief in our world and the grief that the world causes the church and against the Lord's purposes and people, you say, like Habakkuk said, Lord, would you just come down and wipe them all out? And, and you understand those tribulation saints that are pictured in Revelation 6, 9, and 10 as being under the altar in heaven, pleading with God to do something. And, but here Jesus says, don't be impatient, guys. The harvest is at the end of the age. That phrase, the end of the age, is a very important phrase. Matthew uses it five times in his gospel to speak of the ultimate consummation and judgment, that final time which, when God will judge. Now, at this point in the story, 
I'm sure some of the disciples are thinking, Lord, do you want us to put the sickle to those unbelieving tares? They're probably just like the landowner's slaves in the parable. Uh, we, we know that some of them generally had that attitude because James and John had that attitude towards the unbelieving Samaritans. You remember the story in Luke 9, 54. Uh, they asked, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Uh, and instead, the Lord says, the reapers are angels. Uh, so it's not our job. It's not the job of the Lord's slaves to determine which wheat is good wheat and which are false tares. He's simply saying, if you go about trying to judge the world without divine insight, you're going to wind up condemning some of the true Christians. You say, wait a minute, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're not to be conducting church discipline to remove godless unbelievers from our midst? Not at all. Let me explain. First of all, this has nothing to do with church discipline. We will study that in depth, as I said, in Matthew 18. Church discipline is intended as a restorative process to cause believers who are in sin to repent and be restored to fellowship with both God and other believers. It only becomes the removal of the individual from the church fellowship when that individual refuses to repent. Uh, in that case, they're behaving like an unbeliever. And so we are to remove them from the fellowship and treat them like we would an unbeliever. How is that? Well, we call them to repentance and we share the gospel with them just like we would with any other unbeliever. We don't know the true condition of their soul, whether or not they are truly a believer or actually are unconverted. So we pray for their repentance and restoration. But this statement by Jesus has to do with the church's relationship to the world. It's not the message, it's not a message dealing with internal church discipline, but rather with the church's external relationship to the world. And Jesus makes clear that he's talking about the end of the age and the final judgment when the true wheat will be separated from the false tares. And he forbids his slaves from trying to do the work reserved for the reapers, who are the angels, because they might mess it up and destroy some good wheat in the process. But do you know what the professing church has done throughout its history? It's done just that. Uprooted genuine wheat in the name of removing tares. Uh, for example, the Roman Catholic Church authorized a lot of efforts to remove those who it determined to be heretics from the face of the earth. There was the Spanish Inquisition. There was the reign of Bloody Mary in England and many more such efforts throughout medieval Europe. There were thousands of genuine believers who were slaughtered in the name of removing heretics. Uh, we can't do that. God didn't call the church of Jesus Christ to judge the world. God doesn't want us in a position of political power, destroying unbelievers, because the truth is we don't have the discernment to know who the true believers are and who aren't. It's not the church's function to go around ripping out the tares of the world. Uh, that's not what we've been called to do. We're not to attack the world. God hasn't given us that ministry. We're going to grow together, and Satan is going to sow and oversow both the church and the world, the world and the church, because he loves imitation. Uh, but it's not for us to go ripping out the tares out of the world. And wherever in history the church has become a political power, 
it has invariably pr been prone to corrupt that power, uh, to destroy the so-called apostates. Uh, have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? With the exception of the first and second centuries, all of the martyrs of Christ that were slaughtered were slaughtered by those who claimed to be Christians. Read about the Crusades, which is one of the most abysmal periods of human history. Crusaders in the name of Jesus Christ and under the flag of the Roman Catholic Church left Europe to go take back the holy places of Israel from the Turks. And in the process of crossing Europe, they massacred Jews all over Europe because they were considered to be apostates. Uh, it's estimated that they slaughtered between three and 10,000 Jews before they ever got to Israel. Once there, it's estimated that they killed up to 70,000 Jews and Muslims, all in the name of the Prince of Peace. That was the first crusade. There were eight crusades to the Holy Land with a continual ongoing back and forth war between the Christians and the Muslims that lasted for 200 years. To this day, many Muslims in the Middle East still refer to Christians as what? Crusaders. As an expression of their hatred for them. Then there were other crusades against the Roman Catholic Church, uh, against what the popes considered to be heretic Christian communities in various parts of Eastern Europe. Those crusades occurred over a period of 400 years, all the time with Roman Catholic Church authority to remove pagans and heretics from what they considered to be the Holy Roman Empire. But folks, this is not the age of judgment. And what was Jesus' attitude towards these people? How did he treat publicans and sinners? He did it with meekness and love and kindness, right? I mean, how did he treat Judas? Judas was right there in his presence for three years with Jesus knowing all the time that he would one day betray him, and yet he didn't wipe Judas out. He even washed Judas' feet. He was patient. He was kind. He was gracious. When he was falsely accused and crucified, he even asked the Father to forgive those who did it. This is the time of grace. We cannot act as executioners. We must be lovingly, patiently, graciously tolerant like our Lord was. Church is called to preach and teach against sin and all unrighteousness, but in doing that, its purpose is not to judge, but to win souls, not to punish, but to convert the sons of the evil one into sons of the kingdom. And I'm right in the middle of a point, but I've got to stop. So we will pause there and pick this up next time and finish it, conclude it, and move on in our, to the next part of our text. Any questions or comments before we go? <laughs> okay. All right, none? Terry, would you give my voice some relief and, and uh, thank the Lord for our time together? Pray. Uh, teaching, I pray that you help us to remember that, 
gas fund should be with Steve as he keeps bringing that service. Uh, that indirect human credit reward will not return void, but rather there will be some saved in this home. And we praise you for all these things and much, much more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.